Game Barrett. Do you ever doubt yourself? Do you ever look in the mirror and wonder who you really are? My name is Elgin Barrett, and today's haunting is the tale of a terror that comes to us all. It is performed by Charlotte Strevens and entitled The Shadow of Lucinda Shaw. Look, Lucinda, you've just got to face it. Dubai is no place for a 60-something woman on her own. I scowled at her. And where the hell do you expect me to go? I said. Aisha tilted her coffee cup and examined the dregs for a moment. Home, she said quietly. Oh, for heaven's sake, Aish, if by that you mean the UK, then I have to tell you it's the very last place under consideration. I'd always thought of myself as an expat par excellence. I'd lived abroad for the best part of four decades. Italy, Germany, the States, and for the past few years, the UAE. As far as I was concerned, home was any place that wasn't England. Well, you asked me what I thought she said. And it's true, I had. Aisha was probably closer to me than anyone, and I knew she would tell it as she saw it. Usually, I appreciated that, but this time, she riled me. I mean, the very idea of going back to the UK. She knew how much I'd hated growing up there, how I'd longed to leave from the moment I could think straight. What on earth would make me want to go back now? Although... When I reflected on it afterwards, I had to concede she had a point. I was, probably, at the stage in my life when nothing should be written off entirely. The divorce from Dieter had come through the previous week, hence the conversation. It wasn't that I expected sympathy. It had been a marriage based on financial interests rather than mutual ones. And I think the saddest part of it was when we agreed to sell the business we co-owned. So, yes... What was there to keep me in Dubai? A rather smart apartment in a nice part of Jumeirah, and a circle of friends that comprised Aisha and three other women, none of whom I had seen in the previous six months. And I suppose her words must have planted a seed, because over the next few days I found myself clicking through the British news with rather less disdain than usual. I even checked a couple of property websites, although the prices made me laugh out loud. And then... Completely out of the blue, a card arrived, announcing a forthcoming memorial service for my late Uncle Theo in London. I had no particular interest in him. He was a figure dimly remembered from childhood and nothing more. Under normal circumstances, I would have ripped up the card and tossed it in the bin. But on this occasion, I left it there on the breakfast bar. I brooded over it for the next few days... My trips back to the UK had been few and far between in recent years. But people told me things had changed for the better. So could this perhaps be a chance to dip a toe in the water? I started to persuade myself that a flying visit might serve a purpose. I had no close family left, but I might bump into a distant cousin or two. And a few contacts might prove useful. I could also do a bit of shopping and maybe even look at a few of those overpriced apartments. And if I found I still hated the place just as much as ever, I could cross it off the list for good. So, what the hell? Why not? I booked myself onto an overnight flight to Heathrow to arrive on the morning of Uncle Theo's service. 
I flew business, assuming I would get a few hours sleep and arrive reasonably fresh. Of course, I should have known better. I barely slept a wink, and I was bleary and crotchety as I waited at the baggage claim. And that was where things started to go wrong. It was partly my own fault. I had a bag which was about as nondescript as they come. Black, average size, pull-along handle, you know the type. There must be multiple millions of them in the world. Anyway, mine tumbled out of the chute, or at least I thought it was mine. But as I was at the wrong end of the carousel, I didn't have the best of views. And then there was a flash of a hand through the scrum, and an elderly woman in a black dress grabbed the handle and started to struggle with it. My first instinct was to shout, to tell it to wait while I came over and checked the tag. As a general rule, I'm not someone who's averse to making a spectacle of herself. But the woman had seized the bag with such confidence that just for a moment I doubted. And that was all it took. Within a second, a burly young man had come to her aid, hauling it off the belt and onto the floor. And then she shuffled backwards, turned, and was swallowed by the crowd. Had that been my bag? I had a nagging feeling that perhaps it had, but I was feeling so woozy and muddle-headed that I just stood there and did nothing. Over the next twenty minutes, my doubts became increasingly acute, as any number of similar bags tumbled from the chute, none of them mine. And by the time all the other passengers had drifted away and the carousel had come to a halt, I didn't know who I was angrier with, my stupid self or the stupid old woman... My temper wasn't improved by a half-hour wait at the lost luggage office, nor by the twenty minutes it took to fill in their infuriating form. "'When it turns up, we'll have it sent straight on to you,' said the infinitely patient young man behind the desk. I had intended to go to my hotel before the service to brush up and change, but I was now horribly late, and as I had no bag, what was the point?' I made my way to the taxi rank and gave the driver the address of the church. From the postcode, it seemed to be somewhere out in the northwest suburbs, a part of town I particularly despised, a great sprawl of dispiriting semi-detached housing. In theory, it shouldn't have been a long ride, but the cab spent the next 45 minutes crawling round the M25. And by the time I got to the church, I was in a decidedly unchristian mood. The service was well underway, so I took a seat at the back and looked around gloomily. It was a great barn of a place that felt cold and dank, even on a perfectly pleasant summer morning. The turnout was pitiful, but I couldn't help noticing there were a number of elderly women in black dotted around. I scrutinised each one carefully, just to make sure that none had a medium-sized black wheelie bag next to her. And then I realised how ridiculous I was being. I mean, honestly... What on earth were the chances? No, I needed to stop obsessing about the bag. I needed to shake off my foul mood and try to make the best of things. I leant back in my seat, closed my eyes and listened to the vicar for a few moments. She was mumbling some platitudes about Uncle Theo that made it clear she had absolutely no idea who he was. I couldn't claim to know much about him either, but humble was not how anyone would describe him. He was the wealthiest in the family by a long chalk, and, as I remembered, he made damn sure everyone knew it. In fact, the only image of him I could conjure was that of a rather 
fleshy old fellow with the wheel of an extremely large open-top car. A Bentley or a Daimler or something like that. When I felt calmer, I opened my eyes, closed my ears to the droning clergywoman and turned my attention to the rest of the congregation. The front pews where family should be sitting were conspicuously empty. That was a shame. It would make the task of identifying potential cousins all the harder. A couple of rows back, two youngish women and a man sat together with dutiful postures that made me think they were probably workers from Uncle Theo's care home. Apart from that, who else was there? Two extremely elderly couples over on the left, and a middle-aged woman on the other side of the church, sitting next to a teenager who I took to be her son. The end of the service came so abruptly that it caught me by surprise. If there was to be any point to this, I would have to be quick and pick someone before they all went their separate ways. The middle-aged woman, I decided, would be my best bet, and as I approached her... I thought there was something familiar about her. Or maybe not that. Perhaps it was just that her features were vaguely similar to my own. She had a long, flat face, creased from the sun, with a prominent jawline and large brown eyes that must once have made her rather attractive. Excuse me, I said, giving her my best, my most professional smile. It's only a guess, but I thought you might be ashore. Well... Yes, I am, she said, or I used to be at least. She had the deep, cracked voice of a heavy smoker. I'm Lucinda, I said, holding out my hand. Lucinda Shaw. I'm Gina, she said. I suppose we must be related then. Well, as far as I understand, Theo was my great uncle, I said. No, she said. I'm mine. At this, the teenager next to her twitched. No, mother, we went through this last night. He was your great-grandfather's brother, which means he was your great-great-uncle. Oh, whatever. So I would guess, said the teenager, looking upwards and calculating for a moment. Yeah, I would guess that you two are probably second cousins once removed. Uh, remind me about the removed bit, asked his mother. Different generations, he said, with a hint of a smirk. Oh, charming, said his mother. And then, turning to me, I am so sorry about him. He'll grow out of it. I shrugged and laughed. <laughs> it's quite all right. Anyway, this is my son, Adrian. The boy half raised a hand. My second cousin twice removed, I presume, I said. I wasn't sure if this pair were quite the family connection I was hoping to make, but it was a start. And so, when Gina suggested lunch and said there was a little cafe just down the road, I went along with it. So, did you know Uncle Theo well? I asked as we strolled away from the church. To tell you the truth, Lucinda, I never actually knew him at all. You mean you never even met him? No. Oh, I see. So, why the interest in the memorial service? The same as most people, I imagine. Let's be honest. He was worth a bit. That's what I heard. Wasn't he something in the city? Something like that, I think. And as far as I understand, they haven't found a will, so... Mother thought she might be in line for a share of his fabulous wealth, said Adrian. I see, I said. Well, 
Don't tell me it hadn't crossed your mind, Gina continued. There must be some reason you've suddenly come out of the woodwork. She was nothing if not refreshingly direct. We arrived at a small parade of shops, and Gina nodded towards a cafe at one end. Will this do? We sat at a table on the pavement outside, and Gina rummaged in her handbag for her cigarettes. I hope you don't mind, she said, but I've been gasping all morning. So, I said, when she had lit up, one thing that puzzles me is why they only held the memorial for Uncle Theo now. I mean, he must have passed away quite a while ago. Gina exhaled and wafted the smoke away with the back of her hand. No, I don't think so. My understanding is that he died some time last month. Really? I hadn't given this any thought before, but it struck me there was something rather odd here. Because the thing is, I continued, I can just about remember him from when I was a child, and he seemed to be fairly old even then. When you say old, asked Adrian, showing an interest for the first time, how old do you mean? I'm not sure. About your age, maybe. Mid-sixties? Seventy? I could feel my face flush. Adrian, said his mother. It's not nice to talk about people's ages like that. Uh, no, it's okay, I said, trying to recover my composure. Adrian's right. I would guess Uncle Theo was probably somewhere in his sixties. Although that doesn't really make sense, does it? No, that would work, said Adrian. If sixty years ago he was about sixty, then yes, that makes perfect sense. What are you talking about? said his mother. Well, apparently, your Uncle Theo was a hundred and seventeen years old when he died. Oh, don't be silly, Adrian. But he was. I looked him up. Gina shook her head at me. I'm sorry about this, she said. And then she turned to the boy. Look, Adrian, if he'd lived to a hundred and seventeen, he'd be in the Guinness Book of Records. I'm only telling you what I read, he said, his voice rising in frustration. Where? In Grimm's fairy tales? No, mother, online. He was in one of those places that keep you alive forever. One of which places? I asked. Oh, you know, those places that do the gene therapy thing. You know, cell repair, all that. Oh, honestly, Adrian, said Gina, you can be so gullible. I am not being gullible. I can send you the link if you like. No, I'm sorry, darling. If there were people living to such a great age, then I promise you we would all know about it. Only if someone told you, and they don't. It's all very... What's the word? Discreet. The Institute of something or another... It's a very discreet organisation. Gina rolled her eyes at me. Adrian enjoys nothing more than a good conspiracy theory. Isn't that right? It's not conspiracy, Mother. It's science. According to them, the first person to live to a thousand years old is already alive today. Well, let's hope it's not me, said Gina. I think that would be my worst nightmare. God... I couldn't agree more, I said. Three Caesar salads arrived, and as we ate, Gina gave me her potted life story. How she'd always lived in this part of town, her half-cocked career, her dull marriage to Adrian's dreary-sounding father. I barely listened. 
I had already decided that if I were ever to come back to the UK, I would avoid these two like the plague. When we'd finished eating, I excused myself and went inside to look for the ladies. The waitress directed me to a little flight of stairs behind the cash desk, where an elderly woman in black was talking to a man behind the till. Was she one of the women from the memorial service, I wondered? It occurred to me that perhaps I should introduce myself, but she was deep in conversation, so I thought better of it, and instead skirted round her and made my way down to the washroom. I paused for a moment in front of the mirror. I like to think I could pass for a woman at least ten years younger, especially when I scrubbed up. But not today. Oh, boy. That teenager had a point when he called me out on my age. I looked a fright. I was haggard. My eyes were dull and bloodshot. My skin had wrinkles that I'd never noticed before, and there were streaks of grey in my hair that the hairdresser must have missed. No, the woman who looked back at me was not the one I remembered. Was it the jet lag? I supposed it was. It was a bit of a shock, though, that was for sure. When I climbed the stairs again, the old woman had gone, and I made my way back to the table outside. Well, thank you for that, said Gina, after I'd sat down. I'm sorry, thank you for the lunch, that was sweet of you. I was flabbergasted by the cheek of the woman. There had never been any suggestion that I would pay for lunch. Look here, I started to say, but Gina was already on her feet. I hate to rush off, but I've got to get Adrian back to school for the afternoon. I've scribbled my contact details on the serviette. Do get in touch when you're over next. But my treat next time, said Gina. Now, we've really got to dash. I sat there and shook my head as they hurried away. They were a pair of vulgar, shameless, grasping little idiots. They were everything I had left this ghastly country to avoid. The waitress, perhaps noticing my annoyance, came over. Is everything all right, madam? Yes, fine, I snapped. Perhaps you could just bring me the bill? Oh, that's all taken care of. I'm sorry? It's all settled. What? Are you sure? Quite sure. I stared down the road in the direction that Gina and Adrian had gone. Was she playing some kind of game with me? But why would she do that? What on earth did she hope to achieve? I had simply no idea. It was nearly three o'clock when I got to my hotel. It was one of the better chain hotels, and despite being some distance from the centre of London, the price was still extortionate. But it was only for three nights, and I had no intention of slumming it. Good afternoon, Miss Shaw, said the receptionist, the moment I stepped through the revolving door. I was about to respond when it occurred to me that something was not quite right. I mean, how on earth did she know who I was? I stopped in the middle of the lobby and stared at her. Is everything all right, Miss Shaw? I decided to ignore the question. I booked a room for three nights in the name of Lucinda Shaw. That's right, Miss Shaw, said the receptionist with an indulgent smile. Is there anything else I can do for you? What do you mean, I said. I want to check in. Aren't you going to take my passport or my details or something? Oh, no. She gave me a quizzical look. It's all on the computer. She patted the top of the screen. I was at something of a loss as to what to say next. Room 224? 
she said with a rising intonation, as if this was something I already knew. Second floor? I see, I said. And the key? Don't you have it? Now this was really starting to annoy me. Why the hell would I already have it? But before I had a chance to put the thought into words, she went on, It's not a problem, though. I'll do another one for you. She smiled again. Then she produced a plastic card from her desk and popped it through the machine. And as she did so, I could have sworn the cheeky little minx stole a glance across at her colleague and raised an eyebrow. You just touch it on the black pad beneath the door handle, she said. Remember? I snorted at her and snatched the card from the counter. And then I remembered the bag. Oh, yes, I said. There was an issue at the airport. Do you mean about your luggage? That same indulgent smile again. Your bag has been taken up to your room. Already? Yes. I held her gaze for a moment, trying to work out what she was up to. Well, thank you, I said at last, still none the wiser, and I made my way across the lobby to the lift. Second floor, remember? She called after me in a sing-song voice. At the time, I had been too taken aback to be properly affronted, but as I walked along the corridor to my room, I could feel the anger in me rising. I was paying top dollar for this place, and that damn woman had treated me as if I was totally delally. I decided that if she tried the same again, I would bloody well give her a piece of my mind. I was relieved, though, to find she was right about the bag. There it was on the luggage stand next to the desk. I checked the tag to make double sure, then unpacked and laid my things out carefully on the bed. Everything was there except... Hang on a minute... Everything was there except the necklace I had intended to wear to the service. A blue sapphire set in an oval of tiny rubies, the one I'd bought in the gold souk the previous year, and for a not inconsiderable sum of money, too. I returned to the bag and checked the side pockets. Damn it, it was gone. I was halfway across the room to pick up the phone when another thought occurred. Could I be absolutely sure I had packed it? I flopped down in the armchair and thought for a moment. I distinctly remember taking it out of my jewellery box on the dressing table at home. But could I actually recall putting it into the bag? Come on, think, Lucinda, think. If I was honest, I would have to say I couldn't. It was unlike me to doubt myself in this way. Was I becoming forgetful? I went back over the events of the previous 24 hours. Who had I sat next to on the plane, for example? Could I remember that? Yes. And what they had served for breakfast? Hmm, not sure. And when I started to think about it, I realised there were all sorts of spots and gaps in my memory. A hideous notion flashed across my mind. Was I starting to lose it? I got up, walked over to the mirror, and took a long, hard look at myself. If anything, I was even more haggard than earlier. I don't remember ever looking so old before. So was this age? Was that what this was all about? Had my mind started to crumble? Was this the first sign? No, I told myself. No. Come on, Lucinda, get a grip. 
Dita had always teased me about being absent-minded, even years and years ago, even when I was still in my forties. No, there was nothing wrong with me. I mean, how many times do we go back to check we've closed the windows, locked the door? Our mind erases stuff all the time. That's how it works. If we remembered every single detail of our lives, how could we function? It was the overnight flight. That's what it was. It had left me tired and overwrought. It was nothing that a good night's sleep wouldn't put right. I resolved to turn in early and make a fresh start in the morning. I had a long, restless night, and when I finally sensed the light behind the curtains, I came to with an uneasy feeling. I showered, dressed, and applied my makeup even more fastidiously than usual. I told myself again that I would put the curious events of yesterday behind me. I went downstairs and found myself first in the queue for the opening of the breakfast room. I picked up half a grapefruit, a croissant, and a cup of coffee, and then chose a corner table and flipped through the details of the properties I had arranged to view later in the day. Yes, I was definitely feeling better. I was on my way back through the lobby when something made me pause. What was it? And then I realised that there, just to the left of the reception desk, was my bag. I stalked over and checked the tag to make sure I was not deceived. What the hell is this doing here? I yelled at the receptionist. But you said to bring it down. I did no such thing. But I'm sorry, madam. You did. I most certainly did not. I am booked for three nights. I had recovered the courage of my convictions now. I glowered at the foolish girl. It was the same one who had been so presumptuous the previous afternoon. What the hell do you think you're playing at? But, madam, you did say... How dare you contradict me? Yes, yes, madam. She'd become almost tearful under my onslaught. I shall speak to the hotel manager about this. I looked around the lobby and realised that people were staring at me. A couple of men in suits had come out of the breakfast room to see what the shouting was about. A well-groomed woman with long, dangly earrings watched me over the back of a sofa. And then a man in a polo shirt and jeans pushed through the revolving door, strode across to the reception desk, picked up my bag and started to march out with it. I couldn't believe my eyes. I felt helpless, powerless, paralysed. Wasn't anyone going to say anything? Wasn't someone going to stop him? I turned to the receptionist, but she was on the phone, her head turned away. The man had reached the revolving door now, and I suddenly recovered the power of movement. I took a couple of steps and could see there was a black cab parked on the hotel forecourt, the rear passenger door wide open. The man swung my bag inside, and as he did, I saw that sitting in the back seat was an extremely elderly lady in a black dress. My God, it was her, wasn't it? It was the woman who had taken my bag from the carousel. It was the woman I'd seen in the cafe yesterday lunchtime. They were one and the same person. The man slammed the passenger door and climbed into the driver's seat. I ran towards them, but I didn't make it in time. I stood outside on the hotel forecourt and watched as the taxi pulled out into the traffic. Almost immediately, another cab pulled up. I know this sounds ridiculous, I said to the driver, but can you follow that taxi? I pointed down the road to where it was waiting at the lights. Hop in, he said. He kept a couple of car lengths behind, and we trailed them along a busy shopping street before turning left into a broad residential road 
with grass verges on either side and rows of semi-detached housing behind. My mind was racing, trying to make sense of what was happening. The more I thought about it, the more certain I was that it was the same woman I'd seen at the luggage carousel, and if that was the case, then presumably she'd been on my flight too. And if she was also the same woman I'd seen in the cafe yesterday, it would make sense that she was one of the women in black I'd seen at the church. So had she followed me here all the way from Dubai? But why would she do that? Although, now I thought about it, she wasn't exactly following me, was she? Because the wretched woman seemed to be anticipating my every move. Everywhere I went, she got there first. It was as if she were a shadow cast before me, as if she was following from in front. Who the hell was she? I looked out at the taxi window. I guessed we were heading out of town. The streets were becoming leafier and the properties rather grander. I resumed my line of thought, returning to the events in the cafe the previous lunchtime. I needed to think about this as calmly as possible. So could she be the one who had paid the bill for the lunch? If she had, that would explain the confusion. And then had she gone to the hotel, checked me into my room and had my bag sent up? That would explain why the receptionist spoke to me as she did. But why would she do that? And then this morning, well, this morning... Before I could complete the thought, the cab came to a halt. The suburbs had mostly given way to woods and fields, and I saw that the taxi in front had stopped in front of a large security gate set between two high hedges. The driver spoke on the entry phone, then the gate slid back, and the taxi disappeared from view. "'What do you want to do?' asked my driver. "'Let me out here,' I said. When he had gone, I walked down the road and peered through the bars of the gate." A long driveway curved through an immaculate lawn towards a large, red-brick house in the arts and crafts style. To my right was a tastefully lettered sign, The Old Orchard, a care facility in the trust of the Institute of Senescence. After a few minutes, the other cab came up the drive towards me, and when the gate opened to let it out, I slipped into the grounds. I made my way cautiously towards the house, trying to make myself as inconspicuous as possible. I could see the old woman on the terrace at the front, with two carers guiding her through some open French windows. I waited a few moments to make sure I was not being watched, and then crossed the lawn, climbed a short flight of steps and followed them inside. I found myself in what I took to be the day room. It was spacious and thickly carpeted with comfortable armchairs in clusters, several around coffee tables, one around a large, blank television screen. But there was no sign of life at all. I crossed the room and opened the door onto a corridor. Immediately it felt more institutional. It was harshly lit by fluorescent tubes. The walls were bare and the floor covered in functional linoleum. I stood and listened for a moment. The building was completely silent. Then I chose a direction at random and crept along as quietly as I could. The doors on both sides were firmly shut. Were they locked as well? For the moment, I didn't dare try them. And then I stopped and listened. From somewhere behind me there was a distant rattling, and it was coming my way. What to do? There was nothing else for it. I would have to try one of the doors. The first one was locked. I tried the one opposite, the same. The next one, however, opened. I stepped inside and turned to look down the corridor. 
I saw an empty wheelchair come round the corner and glimpsed the carer who was pushing it. I ducked into the room and very gently closed the door. I closed my eyes, held my breath and listened. The rattling came closer, along with a gentle muttering, the carer talking to herself, I guessed. And then she stopped. How far away was she? It was hard to tell. Not directly outside, but not so far away either. I felt my heart rate quicken. What was she doing? There was no opportunity to find another hiding place. I clenched my fists by my side. I waited. And then the muttering resumed. The wheelchair clattered past and on down the corridor, where it seemed to turn a corner because, shortly after that, silence fell once more. I breathed again, opened my eyes and looked around me. The room was not quite pitch black, but had no natural light. As my eyes became accustomed, I decided it must be some kind of boiler room. There was quite a lot of pipework and a number of machines. I took a few paces further into the room and realised there was a considerable amount of cabling too. So, a generator room, perhaps? And then I saw it. A great tangle of wires and tubes and pipes and leads, all focused on a central point. I rubbed my eyes and stared in disbelief, because at the heart of it all was a gentleman of an age so great as to defy speculation. He was strapped to a kind of dentist's chair, his head thrown back one way, his emaciated body twisted the other. His expression was rigid, his eyes were dots, his skin like parchment. Only the slow and steady blinking of the displays above his head told you he was still alive. It felt as if I had intruded on some horrific moment of private grief. I needed to go, but I couldn't take my eyes off him. I backed away. I found the door handle, turned it, stepped outside and closed it with the faintest of clicks. Christ! What kind of place was this? The shock had made me braver because as I walked down the corridor, I tried every handle and the horror grew with each room I entered. The despair in the eyes, the wasted bodies, the gurning skull-like faces, the frozen postures, the tremors, the overwhelming stench of urine. I don't know how many rooms I tried before I found the old woman, although even when I did, it was only her black dress that told me it was her. She sat, jackknifed forward on her chair, it was as if she had been punctured, as if she'd collapsed, as if there was insufficient pressure in her body to hold herself upright. But just like the others, she was still alive, even if only just because after a few moments I realised her fingers were moving. She was fumbling with something at the back of her neck. Can I help you? I whispered. She twitched slightly, which I took to mean no, and then, with an enormous effort, she lifted her head and looked at me. I reeled backwards. The shock of recognition was just too much, because they were my eyes that looked back at me, the unmistakable brown eyes of the Shaw family. Aged. Aged, incredibly aged. Way more tired, way more bloodshot, but somehow still recognisable. 
Are we related? I whispered. She didn't reply, but with quivering hands, she held out the object she'd taken from her neck. I did a double take. It was the necklace. The sapphire necklace. The one I had meant to wear for the memorial service. She whispered something that I didn't catch. I'm sorry? Put it on, I heard as she whispered a second time. I took it and turned away as I fiddled with the clip, and when I turned back to her, she was gone. Hello, I said. Hello, but I was speaking to an empty room. Hello, I yelled. Are you there? And that was what brought the carers in. Three of them. Is something wrong? What are you doing up on your feet? Are you all right, Lucinda? I looked from one to the other and felt embarrassed. I want to apologise for any trouble I've caused, I said. It was wrong of me to come here. But I'd like to leave now. So if you can call a cab... They all smiled, but no one moved. It was as if they hadn't heard me. I'd like to go, I said. I'd like to go home. But this is your home, said one of them. Of course it's not my home, I snapped. My home is in Dubai, and I've made my decision now. That is where I intend to stay. Oh, no, Lucinda not Dubai again. You left Dubai many, many years ago. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, but you did. What are you talking about? I said. This is your home now, Lucinda. No, it isn't. I looked at their kindly, reassuring faces, and I could feel myself starting to sob. Now, there's nothing to worry about, Lucinda. You're safe here with us. And you can stay here just as long as you like. But that, I said, that is the very last thing I want. Shadow of Lucinda Shaw was written by Elgin Barrett and performed by Charlotte Strevens. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Walls. Listener.